So we start out with Adam lay with his wife Eve, which is a, an exp, uh, is a uh, biblical way to define uh, sexuality. And uh, they are husband and wife. Remember, uh, we had, uh, Gibson had talked about Eve was brought to Adam as his wife. And uh, anyway, it says that she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, and this is an interesting comment, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. It's interesting that she cites this. Rather than saying, I have brought forth a boy child, she describes a man. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but I want to point that out here because I'll comment about that. And then later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And notice that she doesn't say anything about him. Just the fact that she did. In fact, Jewish thought, Jewish theologians that have looked at this passage in the Hebrew said that there's a possibility that they could have been twins. And uh, anyway, I'll leave that there and we'll pick that up after I do the reading. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought forth and this is the word that NIV brings distinction to, some. And if you have your own Bible there, you may want to circle that. Some of the fruit of his soil as an offering to the Lord. But, and by comparison, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Here we have the introduction to the human emotion of anger and its destructiveness. It's interesting, going back to Eve, we saw her in, in, in Adam in the context of disobedient actions. Today, we're going to see how that actions go deep into our souls and deep into our human emotions and work themselves out in, in very negative ways. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? We might use the expression of that he was wearing his emotions on his face. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, you have done that from time to time. Or maybe it's a comment, or maybe it's a way, something we pick up in our kids from time to time. We can tell they wear their emotions on their face. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not if you, if you do do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. But you must master it. Isn't that a new idea? That we're personally responsible for our emotions and, our, and our, uh, uh, what goes on within us. These are loaded questions and statements regarding emotions and the internal responses so when somebody is in the grip of anger and actually we could do another whole sermon on that 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which, is, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear, and today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we jump into this. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this story, an old, old story from way, way back, but it gives us insight into our day-to-day activities, our day-to-day relationships, and our day-to-day feelings that we have and our emotions. And so, Lord, as we uncover this today, I pray that it would speak to our hearts, be a passage of Scripture, a warning to us, but also be one of encouragement. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For us to understand this passage, and which is also a theme of some of these early chapters in Genesis that we're looking at that, it's helpful if we understand the meanings of the names of the people that are involved in. And so I want to look briefly here as we, as we jump into this, as the meaning of the boys' names here. Cain... Uh, Tells me, uh, it tells me, and uh, research volumes and and some Jewish literature means possessor or one who has substance. And then we have this saying here that I pointed out before Eve, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Eve saw her divine partnership with God in creating in creation by giving birth to a man here. And I can't help but wonder that this connection that she had had some influence in the way that he was raised there in the home. And this is probably a very early introduction into what we call family systems and the way families behave and, and birth order and parent and child relationships and all of that thing. But also, it's also noteworthy that in the chapter before, we have what is called the Evangelion, which is, which is uh, uh, the promise of the, the deliverer would come in, in chapter 3, verse 15, where God says that this person, he, 
will come and will crush the head and you will strike his heel. This has been pointed out in the last two weeks as, as a promise, and, and we find hope in that, that something was going to come, someone was going to come and, and address Satan here and get involved in a, in a tangle there with Satan that he would crush your head and strike his heel. And it could be, Hebrew theologians talk about this, it could be that Eve thought that the man that she brought forth would be the one with the Lord's help that was going to be this person. And so you can imagine what kind of dynamics that may have been at play in their family as as uh, as Cain is being brought up, as possibly he was the one who was going to deal with Satan. Contrasted with with Cain and what his the meaning of his name means, which is breath or vapor or temporary or one who lacks substance contrasted with Cain, who was a person of substance, here to, a breath, here today and gone tomorrow. That kind of meaningless temporariness and even worthlessness. Like, if I was given one person, one man to deal with Satan, why do I have two? What's the significance of this second male child that I have, this man child, that all of that together gives us an idea of what were some of the dynamics possibly going on there at that very time. And then we also, the text goes on to talk about um, their occupations. Very early in the literature of that time seems to indicate that being a farmer and working the soil was a more sophisticated uh, occupation than being a shepherd. Even though there were many, and shepherds were very common in those days. Back in 2014 is when I made my trip to Israel. And uh, one of the, as we were coming up from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem, that was like a 30-mile trip up there, uphill, upgrade all the time, our bus occasionally needed to shift, but that's the same hill that Abraham offered Isaac on. But as we were going up there and just driving by miles and miles of, of what looked like wasteland and very little pasture, there were the, the uh, Bedouins, which were shepherds at that time. And even to this day, they live very primitive lives in tents and whatnot. And so that picture and that image could have easily fit all the way back there that Cain had a more sophisticated occupation than his brother Abel did, who was a tender of sheep. But all of this sets the stage of what is to come. And so when we look carefully at the text, we see an attitude in Cain that he is somehow pictured in this narrative. But also, let me again remind you of what the biblical writers thought of him. 
what I said in June, as the way of Cain, also in 1 John, that he belonged to the evil one and that his deeds were even. And even Hebrews 11, he is not included in the, in the uh, faith hall of fame, as I would say. Tim Keller, in his book, writes this paragraph to describe all of this information, all of this information that we glean about Cain, and I want to share that here with you to give a perspective here on what is really going out. But Tim writes that Cain's self-identity was internally constructed within himself in relationship to Abel. In other words, he saw himself in relationship to his brother. Simply put, he thought he was better than Abel. And this was so deep within him internally that his self-assessed worth and value of himself was superior to that of his brother Abel to the point that it consumed him. And he was fully dependent on that certainty, Tim writes, and that he was better than his brother Abel. And so that description there of a tremendous amount of research looking into the original languages or what their names meant and and all of the information we have kind of describes this dynamic between Cain and Abel. So let's try to understand this. Let's think of it in the context and many of you are sitting here and you have a trade that you do and you and you may do it well and you may be you may be better at it than other people, or maybe you're a professional person and, and you have honed your skill very, very well than somebody else does, with year, and you have years more of experience. You've had unique opportunities to really to hone your skill down in such a way. And all of that is good. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But when your self-defined identity is tied to your worth and value as a person, that's when it sets you up for trouble. And it's all you need is a life experience or something to happen that is very ordinary and all of a sudden that's going to come to the surface. And that's exactly what we have here in this situation. We have a worship experience. And more than likely, their dad, Adam, he taught them, hey, from time to time, you guys will, you'll, you need to worship. And he told them exactly how to do that. And so we have this text right here. Cain brought some, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. I brought this, one of the things that I like to do, I like to be a gardener and I raised some things, and this on Monday was my first tomato. First tomato here. Nice and red. Took a lot of time, and I actually picked it so that no animal would nibble at it. And, uh, and I was thinking as I looked at it carefully, I could use this as a sermon illustration. And so Gibson here, uh, he's kind of the priest here among us using Old Testament language, and I could have said, hey, this is first fruits. I'll give this to Gibson. And so anyway, I would have given it to him, and then he would have taken it home and looked at it. And on the bottom, 
it's got dry rot. It would have met the qualifications of first fruits. It was definitely the first fruit, but it was not quite perfect. And this is a picture a little bit. We don't have the details here, but it's some of the produce. And what helps us to understand is when we compare it to Abel's offering, and let's look at that, but Abel brought, and here we have two mentions of the fat portions. Now, there, now there, he would have gathered his flocks together and picked out what were the fat portions, the best-looking ones. He would have gathered those, and then, or excuse me, the firstborn. He would have gathered the firstborn out of that, and out of the firstborn, he would have chose the fat ones, the best ones out of that, and those are the ones that he offered in comparison to Cain, who offered, and we don't know exactly what that was, but he offered some of his produce. He picked out some of it, is what the text tells us. There are people who look at this text and says, well, the problem was he didn't offer an animal, but we could find texts where produce is an appropriate offering to the Lord. We could find those, and we're not going to take the time to look into that detail. But that was an appropriate offering in certain situations at certain times. But it wasn't the best. And I think that's what the NIV text. I did some research in the ESV and in John MacArthur's ESV study Bible. In the study notes, it makes a similar kind of distinction than the NIV does, even though the ESV uh, does not use the word some. I also this morning picked, off my, picked out my original study Bible that I used, which was the New American Standard Bible, and that also does not use the word some, but in the study notes, picks out on the same idea. And so here we have the comparison and the contrast of their offerings that were offered to the Lord. Some of the fruits and compared with the fat portions of the firstborn. Consequently, there's consequences that come out of this at this particular point because of these two offerings. First, we have the disobedience of Cain right here. But secondly, when leaving worship, when leaving worship, offering something like that, he didn't have that feeling, which is talked about many other places in Scripture, of being justified. Like his sins were not properly atoned for. Similar to my illustration of seeing that movie back 50-some years ago when he's surrounded with smoke in his eyes from his offering. He just didn't have that sense of leaving his sacrifice, having this sense that he was forgiven or that he experienced God's righteousness. Rather, his soul is restless. He is angry. And further, he gets more angry when he realizes that his brother, who he despised, that his offering is accepted and his is not. And that drives a person like that to cling more deeply to good works and goodness and try to earn it. Just like the elder brother 
in the story of the prodigal. This, this story has so many links to other stories. And here we have the silent, sulking sin of desire. The same as Eve experienced. And it's set on fire in this life happening. It's set on fire within him with anger and gets out of control. And, G and God says, this sin, it desires to have you. It desires to consume you. James talks about this in James 1. He says, but each one of you is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, this is incredible graphic language, conceived, it's like birthing language. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown and mature, it gives birth to death. Echoed in this story is also the story that Jesus tells in Luke 18, 9 to 14, about two men who went to the temple to pray. And it's interesting that Luke sets this text up by the fact that they were, Jesus was surrounded with people, which Luke says they were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on other people. It's interesting that he uses those two things. These people were all there and Jesus picked up on that, so he tells this story. And so we hear of these two men who went to the temple to pray, and here we hear the voice of the Pharisee praying these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this guy beside me. Those are all quotes there from Luke. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance, aware of his own sinfulness and what goes on within him, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, in telling the story, makes an incredible point. He said, the latter guy, he went home justified compared to the other. And getting back to Cain and Abel, Cain couldn't find justification. He couldn't find it in his offering. And he gets more and more angry. It's amazing that there's so much emotion that shows up already in the second generation. And actually, the text is calling out religious goodness and moral, ethical living without God. Before the murder, remember, Cain on the surface is a good guy. He's a worshiper. He comes and wants to make worship to God. When you think that you're better than somebody else, when your worth and value and your whole sense of being and personal identity as to who you are is all tied up in your superiority, you're in trouble. And an everyday life experience of some sort is going to expose that. And you either have two options. There's two options you have. One is to reinterpret your understanding of yourself. First of all, and that's hard to do. That is very hard to do. Or destroy the other person. And Cain shows us the latter in the extreme 
But in the same time, today, and in those days as well, there's all kinds of ways that we can destroy people. But Cain chooses the latter. Also, in Keller's book, he has a book on forgiveness. I highly recommend that book. He also cites the same story in that, in, that, uh, in that book as well. And he says these words, is that Cain's self-identity of himself was constructed in relationship to Abel. And, he, and Tim basically repeats this whole scenario again and shows the options that Cain Cain would have had. When our personal worth and value, our self-identity has been crafted in being superior to other people, and, and this is a conversation that is going on in our world right now. Maybe it's another ethnic group. Maybe it's another people group. And then the other gets affirmed or gets valued and gets honored in some kind of a way with some kind of accolades, we're in trouble. If, if it's so deeply invested in us, we're in trouble and our sinful, unredeemed self needs to do something about, about that. Like I said, we either have to radically readjust the identity of ourself or we end up, our sinful self, we end up in activity which tries to destroy the other person. And we have all kinds of ways of doing that. Another rabbit trail, and I'm not going to go down here, but I'm just going to mention this. Another person who we are very familiar with is Peter. He basically did the same thing. When Jesus introduced the conversation to his disciples that he was going to suffer Guess who said, not on my watch, you're not going to suffer? That was Peter. And then this ordinary experience as Jesus is on his way to crucifixion and whatnot, standing beside the fire, and somebody picked up Peter's accent as a Galilean and said, oh, you must be one of his followers. And we all know the story. That's another whole rabbit trail we could go down to. And we see how hard it is, how hard it is to change the internal stuff that goes on in our life here. Picking up, as God begins to deal with the scenes, with the theme here of anger, and I apologize to all you cat lovers, but God describes this in feline terms. When you're angry, when your face is downcast and you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching. Just like a cat. If you've ever watched a cat catch a mouse or catch a bird or whatever, and the way they crouch down and curl up their tail and wait till the right time it is to pounce, that's exactly how God describes sin as it has its desire to consume us and to take and there's that point where it takes over in our life and we're totally out of control we have we have no way of turning back and Cain here in this story he has no way no ability to put the brakes on this has been nurtured in his soul 
for, for I don't know how long, but I think there's some time here. And finally, he says to his brother, let's go out in the field. I don't know what else went on in that conversation, but they get out there and uh, he kills him out there. Just a question, a practical question. Do you have in your situation, maybe as I'm talking about this, a situation is coming up in your life that has totally drawn you in, totally sucked you in, and I raise the question, do you have the ability to back down? Is there a time when you can get out of that situation and do what you need to do and to make things right and to make relationships right? And uh, we, we go over that monthly here at our communion time. We talk about relationships with other people and whatnot. Or are you at the point in some kind of a way where you have crossed that boundary and you have no ability and you are in the midst of destroying somebody by their reputation in some kind of a way? Well, it's interesting to see how God uh, intervenes here. And... Uh, he does not wait for Cain to do his evil deed, but he comes down actually ahead before Cain does this. And God sees Cain's inward struggle and he comes and he warns him. Secondly, he intervenes tenderly. He says, why are you angry? Why, why is your face downcast? And before he gets to the idea of doing right, he wants him to get underneath his motives. He wants Cain to get underneath his motives for why he is angry and downcast. And he wants Cain to, to, get in, to get control of this whole situation. And then thirdly, and I want to give credit here to uh, a theologian, Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament Bible scholar and commentator. And he says this point, and I thought this was so good, God's justice for God's concern for justice for the innocent, Abel, is matched only by one other thing, and that is his care for the sinner. God is caring here about Cain. He holds Cain responsible, but he is caring for him in, a, in an incredible way. And God answers Cain's concern with a mark or a sign of protection is the most mercy he can do for the unrepentant person. Verse 13 in this chapter is not repentance. Cain is saying, all I'm concerned about is my punishment. The mark of a repentant person is always to say, my punishment is just. That's, that's the humble way of going and then allowing as we've been open and honest with God and repentant and then allowing his grace to work in our life. Derek Kidner continues to say in this ridiculous unrepentant and self-defensive plea there's this cry to God pity me and God responds and this is amazing God cares for the uh, unrepentant God cares for people who will not listen to Him. He cannot bring them into His presence, but He protects them when He sends them out. And that's what we see here in this story. How do we see Abel? What is the core difference between Cain and Abel? It was in the attitude of their offering. 
It wasn't so much in their offering, but it was the attitude that, that revealed itself in their offering. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, Abel's offering in Abel offered in faith, and Cain did not. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. We're talking about it here today and trying to learn lessons from it today. Faith always means it's a response to God's grace. Abel knew of the promise in, in Genesis 3.15 given to Adam and Eve, and they would, have, they would have told him that someday a descendant of Eve would show up and not just hate sin and death, but would wrestle with sin and death, and even though he would be wounded, he would triumph and kill sin and death. So Abel comes, and he makes a response. He makes a sacrifice in response to salvation. He makes a sacrifice in response to what God has done, in response to what God has provided. Contrasted with Cain, Cain comes and he makes his offering not as a response to salvation, but as a means of salvation. Cain brings the things that he has done. Look what I have done. I'm a good person. I'm a better person. Look at my sacrifices. Look at my goodness. And he gets angry, really angry, when God does not show him favor and accept his offering. Cain's hate Abel's. Cain's are persecutors. Cain's are people who feel superior and they blame people. Abel's know the grace of God and they never feel superior to anybody. They know they need Jesus. It would be fitting to ask the question here in this story, who is the real Abel in this story? Who is the real Abel? Well, after many years, a descendant of Adam and Eve came along, and like Abel, he was absolutely filled with faith. He was filled with grace, and also like Abel, he was killed by Cain's. Don't forget, Cain is a religious person. Cain was a good person. Cain is a moral person, and he tried to use God rather than serve God. God with his good deeds. The people who killed Jesus were not irreligious or immoral people. The prostitutes and tax collectors and also the called sinners of the day, they were not the ones who killed Jesus. The Cains killed Jesus, just as Cain killed Abel. The religious good people killed Jesus. In a sense, Abel looks like Jesus, but there's another way in which Jesus is a greater Abel. When Abel's blood was spilled, Spilled blood always cries out for justice. God noted that in his conversation with Cain. 
But when Jesus' blood was spilled, the writer of Hebrews says this, you have not come to, and he goes on to list a number of Old Testament images that were partial images and types of the future that was to come. And you can find that list in Hebrews 12. But the last one, he says this, but you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that? What's going on here? Jesus' blood cries out for justice because all unshed blood cries out for justice. And in Jesus' case, it's justice for us. See, if a Christian, when you sin, Jesus, our advocate, is standing before the Father pointing to His blood saying, Father, I want them acquitted. I want them loved because Your law demand payment. And I have given it. Therefore, if you do not continue to love and embrace them, it would be unjust. You would be getting two payments. My blood, Jesus said, cries out for justice. Not against them. Not against you and I. But for us. Do you see Jesus and the great Abel? Do you know what He's done for you? How He voluntarily came and died for you? Do you know that your sins are paid for and forgiven? Or are you caught up in a lifestyle that's trying to earn favor with God? Do you know how much you're loved and embraced by God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for this story, and yet we're, we're disappointed in Cain's life and the journey that he took. And yet, if we're honest, we find ourselves at the precipice of where Cain found himself. We're, we find ourselves there from time to time. Lord, help us to have the courage to master it and to be repentant and to see our sin and to apply Your grace which was shed for us on our behalf. Lord, I thank You for our salvation. I thank You for Your great love and the way and the provision that You have made for us. And as we journey along, I pray that our faith would continually be renewed over and over again. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.